It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Some events are so harrowing, they either shape who we become or who we move past them. They either break us entirely or we pick up the pieces and put ourselves back together altered but not shattered. Rachel Thompson, Broken Pieces, an incredible book and such a beautiful quote. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where good girls go for sexual empowerment. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so honored and excited to have Rachel Thompson, this author and advocate, joining me. She is the author of newly released Broken Places which was the 2015 Honorable Mention winner of the San Francisco Book Festival. That's so huge. And the multi-award winning Broken Pieces. I'm reading that now, and it is so moving and so poetic and poignant. Uh, she's also written humor books, including A Walk in the Snark and Man Code <laughs> Exposed. I love that. I feel like we could talk about this this here, too. Um, she's also published and represented by Book Trope. As the owner of Bad Redhead Media, she creates effective social media and book marketing campaigns for authors wonderfully. She's very accessible online, which is actually how I got to get in touch with her. And she's a staunch advocate for sexual abuse survivors, having um, gone through such experience herself. And that's the main reason that I wanted to chat with her. Then I started reading her book and realized there's just so much we could explore. Thank you so much for joining me, Rachel. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, one thing that is so unique and spectacular about you is the fact that you speak out so openly about these issues, about uh, sexual trauma, about being a sexual abuse survivor and providing resources for other people who are going through similar experiences. Why is that so rare? What keeps most survivors from speaking up about, you know, their past experience with abuse? Well, I, I think it goes to shame more than anything else. Um, when I was 11 years old, um, I was abused by a neighbor dad and it went on for on and off for about a year. And I didn't say anything to anyone, excuse me. Um, I ended, I mean, if you read the books, you'll get the story, but, um, I ended up testifying against him and he, he got two years in, of jail time, but as a teen and an adult, I, I didn't share my story. It's not like you walk up to somebody and go, hi, I was sexually abused. So it's, it's not really a polite dinner conversation, but it, as a woman, as a mother, as a daughter, as a friend, there are things that happen to you and you don't at least I didn't um, recognize that certain things that I was reacting to in certain ways, hypervigilance and um, anxiety and panic attacks. I didn't know that I was having these things and that they could somehow be tied to the abuse. Um, but the reason that I kept it to myself was out of embarrassment and shame. And so that I, in, in talking with other survivors now, I understand that that is definitely a common thread. And I write about that. In fact, I actually give shame a name and a personality and refer to her as shame as a her and, and give her a, a capital letter. Mm -hmm. Her name is shame because I think she embodies such a, a strong character as somebody that we 
almost become. Sure. And I imagine separating it from yourself in a way, you know, could be a really empowering thing. I know that uh, people who go through addictions or eating disorders sometimes too kind of you know, like I personified my eating disorder as Ed, as so many people do. And there's mm-hmm. something about that that is, you know, because it's a part of you and part of your experience and has shaped you. But being able to say that that is not who I am is is pretty powerful. Well, I think that's definitely a form of dissociation. And I I haven't had a de- uh, an eating disorder, but there's definitely there's that component where you step away and watch yourself. And so I think that that's definitely um, a lot of survivors have issues with food or addiction and and I can see that that is a part of it. And, and certainly I, I do feel that, um, a survivor of any kind of trauma has that kind of dissociation. And so shame is par- part of that. And I think that anybody who has to deal with that dissociation is, is not a bad thing. It's, it's actually a survival instinct and that's how we get by. And I still find myself in times of stress watching myself do certain things Mm -hmm. and I'll go, Oh, wait, okay. I'm in that mode. I need to find out why I'm in that mode and catching myself doing that. Interesting. So it becomes a tool in a, in a mm-hmm. way. Uh, did you find that, because this happened to you, your your own the abuse that happened to you happened early on, you know, in your childhood. Did mm-hmm. you find that it, you know, had repercussions immediately or was it one of those things that kind of was buried, this underlying thing that emerged over time? I think the answer is both. <laughs> um, I was always very sort of quiet anyway, a reader, avid reader, early reader, really, and and a writer. I started writing when I was 10 years old, right before the abuse happened. And so I really went into that world of reading and writing. And my mom said she never knew when I was in the house because I was so incredibly quiet, whereas my older sister was always the door slammer and the yeller. Mm -hmm. And I was the complete opposite of that. And that didn't really change. I actually went more into my own world. So in a way, maybe the abuse, um, you know, everything happens for a reason. I do believe that probably helped me in my writing because it helped me create those sort of worlds where I really wanted to be as opposed to the world where I actually was living. Um, and I created this world where it was safe for me to be. <clears throat> so in that way, I wrote a lot more and created in, in, in an imaginary way, uh, you know, friends and, you know, this cat that I really wanted to have because I couldn't have a cat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that sort of childhood way, um, I became this person that I wanted to be. And as I grew, I just sort of pushed myself to be this, you know, perfect girl, this straight A student, this, uh, perfect athlete. Um, the problem with that was if I wasn't perfect, for example, I failed my driver's test when I was 17 and I was absolutely crushed and embarrassed by that. And it was devastating to me. Um, I got, I think I got a C or something in one of my math classes. Now I am a writer, so math Mm -hmm. is not my strongest suit, but I didn't really understand that at the time. So to me, to not get a straight A, my parents could have cared less. They knew that I was a really good student. I always got straight A's, but I was devastated. So for there to be a crack in that armor 
was hugely devastating for me. So I think I didn't understand why I was in this strive for perfection. If I had been in therapy, I think there would have been quite a lot more understanding. But, you know, it was the 70s. I was born in 1964. And a lot of people were doing therapy, but it was more that sort of transcendental meditation and, you know, pops some acid and that kind of therapy. <laughs> that kind so of my, therapy. Yeah. So my parents were like, no way, not going to happen. Yeah, so. Wow. So did you uh, eventually get therapy or is this primarily your own uh, healing process that you did it independently? Oh, no, I did. I did get therapy um, when I had my daughter. Uh, I was 35 years old and I was fine during the pregnancy. As soon as I had her, um, I went into a major depression. Um, they would now of course say it was postpartum depression, but my therapist said it was actually something quite different because I looked at her and I had to go back to work at the time I was working as a pharmaceutical rep and the thought of leaving her with a stranger just completely freaked me out. I thought, how on earth am I going to leave this little baby safe? And even though I was in a really good circumstance at the time, I was married to a good guy and I was able to find a sitter who could come to my home and take care of her while my husband who worked in the house could keep an eye on everything. It was really an ideal situation. I just couldn't handle it. And I became depressed and anxious and really just um, non-functional. And so I talked to my gynecologist and she's like, sweetie, this is the first doctor who ever asked me, did something happen in your past that would make you feel this way besides, you know, pregnancy hormone going crazy after the birth? Um, which is real and does happen. And I said, yeah, actually, something did happen. She said, okay, we're going to get you a good therapist. And she was really instrumental in that A, me being in the office of one of the premier post-traumatic stress disorder um, psychiatrists in Orange County. Oh, wow. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And when you had that, I know that being kind of diagnosed or having names for these kinds of experiences and these um, conditions and this kind of trauma can work in all kinds of ways, you know, good, good and negative. Did you find that to be kind of, did it bring you peace and kind of empowerment to know that there was a root there or how did you feel about um, being told that you had PTSD? It was very helpful um, because he, it was a man, and, and I have no issues with the fact that he was, he was really gentle and very sweet and a really good guy. And I, I saw him for seven years, actually, uh, once a month for seven years. And and I feel that he helped me to understand quite a bit of what I was – I could recognize that that I was – that a lot of what I was experiencing wasn't just – part of daily life. I didn't understand that the hypervigilance that I would feel, I would have nightmares and flashbacks. And if somebody, like if somebody walked in right now, as you and I are talking, I'm in my office, my door is closed. If the kids, for example, I have two children, if they walked in and opened the door without knocking, I would jump three feet. And that is natural for me. And I didn't realize that not everybody's like that and that my heart would race for a half hour. And he explained to me that that is that hypervigilance and that is a um, 
an effect of having lived first after the abuse happened. I lived next door to the neighbor and his family for eight years and had to see them in school for, you know, another eight or nine years until I went off to college and had to go to sleep every night knowing they were right. He was right there except for the two years that he was in jail. And having face to face him twice in uh, military and civil trials. And so all of that affected my brain and my body to the point where I carried that forward even now. And I'm 51 now. And so it explained quite a bit of how that really changed me. And subconsciously, I react to things without even realizing it. And so it made a lot of sense to me. And and I'm glad that I could that that really spurred me to eventually write about it and how it affected me because I didn't realize a lot of that. Interesting. That is so interesting. And you talk really beautifully about in in your uh, first book in uh, Broken Pieces. You talk about you know talking to the police and how you kept this secret at first almost you know protected your family uh from from the pain of it at first how did you end up talking to your your parents and your family about what had happened to you well i mean the sheriffs came to the door i'll never forget it my mom opened the door and and the sheriffs it was two men said did you know did and my mom had three has three girls um my do- my Older sister and I were the ones kind of standing behind her at the time, and my little sister was only a year old, maybe a year and a half. And so they said, did anything happen? And my mom said, of course not. Nothing would have happened, right, girls? And, you know, we nodded in agreement. And there must have been a look or something exchanged where I I knew I wanted to tell, but I just was so terrified. And um, they must have seen something in me because they came back with a female officer and she ended up talking to me and, um, basically getting it out of me. And, um, I remember that was really how they found out. And it wasn't that I went to my parents and said, something happened and you need to tell the sheriffs. It was really the sheriff's, you know, detective work or understanding that kind of nonverbal communication that there was something more than was, you know, being told at the time. Yeah. Interesting, which is so important when people recognize something that's going on and, and dig deeper when they sense something, because it really seems that our media trivializes abuse, um, why do you think that that happens? You know, I have a lot of conversations with people on Facebook, particularly men. We had this conversation yesterday. Um, I, I don't know if it's a lack of understanding or education because as women, we deal, whether we're abused or not, we deal every day with potential abuse or looks or, or stories in the media where women are abused more than men. I mean, it's just a fact. It's not like I'm just making this up. Um, and even that goes underreported. Okay, so the statistics from Rain or from the government are that one in four girls under the age of 18 will be abused and one in six boys. And of those, 90% know their abusers. So typically, even though we're taught about stranger danger, we know that the person who, 
you know, the person abusing us is somebody that we know in 90% of the cases. So for me, it was a neighbor. Typically, it's, you know, a family member, um, somebody, a teacher or a church person, you know, of some sort, um, which a coach, it's just very sad. And, and so these are the situations that we're dealing with. And, um, you know, I'm not sure in, in most of those cases, I think they say that 85% of the perpetrators are male. And it's just not that it doesn't happen the other way around. Of course it does. But as a woman, I write about my experiences. So I get a lot of males who come at me saying that there's gender bias or that for some reason I, I'm hating men. I got a lot of that when I wrote The Man Code Exposed. And really I was just writing about my experiences with my husband at the time. We were married for 22 years. We're actually still really good friends. And he thought the book was hilarious mm -hmm. because he totally owned up to all these silly, goofy things that he did. And, and then really that's what I was writing about. Um, you know, I think that for whatever reason, men are very uncomfortable talking about sex in an abusive sort of way. They're comfortable talking about it if they're, you know, Texas cheerleaders or Hooters girls, right? Um, but if it's in some way where they're good guys and we're talking about men are raping women, they're not the guys who would rape. So when they're talking about men who do rape, they don't want to be bunched in with those guys who do. And so therefore they feel, well, that can't happen. I'm not that guy. So I'm going to sort of poo poo it and say, oh, well, no, that's not me. And I understand that because I'm surrounded by really good guys. I'm dating a guy who's wonderful. Um, my ex is a good guy. My dad is brilliant. My son is a wonderful little boy. There are a lot of good men in this world who would look at that and go, I would never do that. And, and I think that maybe they're just really, really uncomfortable being lumped in with men who do that. Sure. That is such a, an excellent point. You know, it sounds like they're taking it personally, but it reminds me of, I don't know if you've read The Gift of Fear um, by Gavin yes. Becker. I talk yes. about it all the time. I love yes. that book. And I, I swear, I tell people I sell more of that book than my own because I'm just, <laughs> I just love it. And it was so empowering for me to read. I read it repeatedly, like at least once a year. And one thing I love about the book is he says most guys, most people are good. Like they're good people who just want to have a good life and they are respectful. But the minority, it's, it's, it's a small number, but those, those particular individuals can cause such harm and we just need to be aware, you know, we just mm -hmm. need to be able to protect ourselves and, and, and all of that. And, and hopefully good guys, you know, and, and women will, will understand that more. And it's interesting what you said about, you know, women can be the perpetrators too. It seems like there's a lot of shame for men and boys to, uh, come forward even more so in some ways. I mean, I think the shame runs so deep for everyone, but it seems like, or maybe there's just different kinds of shame. It's almost like the, the quote, slut shaming epidemic, you know, that the victim is, is blamed. Um, and I know that, that boys sometimes will be considered, you know, they're, they're equally kind of slut shamed sometimes when they have been molested or whatnot. Uh, do you hear from many males who have experienced abuse as well? I do. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm echoing for some reason. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, sometimes <clears throat> Skype does some funny things. I don't hear the echo, so that's cool. okay. Good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah. I started sex abuse chat um, not this past January, but the January before with Bobby Parrish, who is an incest survivor herself, and also a therapist who specializes in treating both men and women who are survivors of sexual abuse particularly childhood sexual abuse. And um, we get a lot of men on, it's a Twitter-based chat, it's public. So we get a lot of people who are what we call gawkers um, and they, or they lurk. They're not ready to share their story or contribute. It's um, every week on Tuesdays at six o'clock Pacific Standard Time, have to get that in. Um, but it's there to really help anybody. We have a specific top every topic every week and we've had some men on who are, very vocal about being male survivors. And we have a lot of guys, I get a lot of emails and private messages on Facebook. And I have a private, what we call secret group, that's Facebook's terminology, um, not mine, um, where I have about 70 members um, who are both men and women, primarily women, because women are primarily um you know, we, we report it more or we are more talkative about it. Um, but there's about 10 guys in there. Yeah. And yeah. And so they do talk about it. Some men are still really, really angry, um, and blame women for what happened to them. And so then all women are to blame. And then, you know, I, I hear that, like I said, with some men who will say, well, you don't talk about men and, and, you know, the instances or the stories. And so I do share a lot of stories on my Rachel in the OC Twitter and my Rachel Thompson author um, Facebook account, uh, my personal account and my and my author page just to raise awareness and to engage in discourse because I feel education is just so important. Um, but, you know, as a writer, uh, particularly of narrative nonfiction, I'm writing about my story. And so obviously I'm a woman and my story is about being abused by a man. So I can't obviously write about what a man has experienced, but my way of, of allowing uh, guys to have their say uh, and use my platform, because I've been doing this now for, gosh, um, I started in 2009 with my blog um, and I published my first book in 2011 is I open up my blog, my, my author blog, which is Rachel to anybody who wants to share their real life story. And that can be male, female. It can be any story. It doesn't have to be about sexual abuse. Um, as long as they're willing to, you know, they're a good writer and they're willing to edit it themselves. Cause I'm just too busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and send it over to me. I'm willing to, um, put it up there and, and they can benefit from, you know, the readers that I have. Sure. And the readers really benefit. I've enjoyed uh, reading many of the, the guest contributions and, and some about some of the high profile cases that have been happening lately. I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts. I know the, the Dugara story is really big right now. You know, the, the Bill Cosby story g- continues. How do you feel that the media is, is handling these topics in general? You know, it's hard because some of them are sensationalized, of course, um, with Dugar, um, you know, Bobby actually is one of my staff writers and she and I talked about how to handle or approach that story. And 
I think that it's really important for that particular story. People really went after the family and I personally have never watched the show. I just was never into it. I'm not a huge reality TV fan. Um, I don't really watch much TV because a, I have two kids and they're constantly on it. Um, so whatever, you know, watching Pokemon or, you know, my son is nine, so God knows what's on there. Um, and then I'm, I'm always writing or busy doing client work. So to me, TV is just really not that important unless, you know, orphan black is on and then forget it. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're watching that. Um, But with regard to that kind of programming, I'm just really not interested. But I did feel that it was important because I do have a brand, right? And of course, I'm an an advocate for, I call them survivors. I don't ever use the term victims. That's just not in my vocabulary. Um, I wanted to present it in a way that um, we talked about the survivors and what could be done for survivors, whether it's of that particular family or how they, you know, other survivors are being treated. And I think that's the same really for any of the high profile cases, like the ladies that are coming out and talking about Cosby or um, Stephen Collins. And I think, um, you know, every situation is different. Um, a lot of people have come to me and uh, as if I'm an expert and I'm not, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm a survivor. And they'll say, well, how is Lena Dunham's case different than what's going on with the Duger case? And I, I tell them that, well, obviously gender upon gender is different than different gender upon different gender. Um, but I, I don't think that you can compare the cases. I think each one is totally different and how they're handled is also completely different. You know, Lena Dunham came out and talked about what she did with her sister in her own memoir, um, at the age of seven. And then, you know, the Duger case is completely different in that it was completely covered up and not dealt with at all by the authorities. And I mean, it's like comparing apples and oranges. But the point is that, you know, my concern is what's being done for the girls and are they in therapy and are they getting help or are they still in this whole sort of cultish kind of state of mind? Um, I think with the Cosby gals that are coming out, um, the the public male and female seems to be saying oh they're just in it for the money and yeah. that just seems really shocking to me that goes to that whole slut shaming thing yeah. why on earth would anybody come out and say yeah he raped me or yeah he drugged me and raped me especially for a lot of these women who are extremely wealthy in their own right because it's it's embarrassing and shameful to have gone through this Especially for a lot of these gals, like I said, who, you know, like Janice Dickinson, she doesn't need Cosby's money, please. Um, why, you know, but people don't believe her because she's had plastic surgery. Like that makes no sense to me whatsoever. That's awful. That is awful. And, you know, especially because, you know, and not to draw any conclusions about her specifically, but when somebody is judging someone saying they altered their appearance (laughs) or they they dress a certain way or they have, you know, they're so focused on their, their weight or they dress a certain way. It, it has nothing to do, first of all, with, you know, who they are as a person, but, but also sometimes you could go through such trauma 
and develop those dysmorphic feelings about your body and appearance. So, you know, it's like it just doesn't make any sense to kind of point fingers like that. And I've actually heard a lot of people say, you know, why do these women keep talking about it? Like, quote, it's old garbage, you know, like just leave it in the past. And I've been surprised at some of the people who've who've said that, I, I believe, and you could correct me if you happen to know if I'm wrong, but didn't um, Felicia Rashad even say stand up for Cosby at, at one point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she came out and said, uh, well, I never witnessed anything, mm. so I don't see how that would be possible, which, yeah, that really <laughs> surprised me. But, yeah. you know, part of it is that he's looking for people who are well-respected to come out and say something positive about him. And it's very likely that she didn't see anything. And so, of course, she would say that. Um, You know, people that he... it's. But to go back to your point, I think that because somebody is less believable because they've had plastic surgery or somebody's less believable because they're a woman... And he's more believable because he's a man. I, it, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. So yeah. that's where I think that the the media has to handle it differently. Or, you know, it's, it's like they try to remain neutral. Like if you're reading something on USA Today or Time Magazine or the New York Times, the, they're presenting it from a quote-unquote journalistic point of view where it's technically neutral. Right. Right. But I don't think that it is um, where they're only presenting the facts. I just don't see it that way. I think I'm waiting for the big Vanity Fair article to come out. Right. Sure. Um, And then we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. I I feel like they don't, you know, part of journalism is doing your full research. You know, it's hard Mm -hmm. to be unbiased with anything, but I think, yeah, I, I completely, completely agree with you. Uh, And I love how you speak openly about all of this and also, you know, explain that it's you speak from your experience and you have your opinions and also that, you know, nobody knows all of the answers, but you really have these conversations and keep them going. Because I think once a person starts the conversation, people will join in. And that's the scary part for a lot of people. And I also think that you are a great role model for so many who, whether they're lurking or whether they're engaged with you, they see you having, you know, a successful career and family life and and all of this. Um, but you've also had some, uh, you speak pretty openly about uh, your recent divorce in uh, your, your book, Broken Places. Mm-hmm. How has the abuse from your past influenced your romantic life? You know, it's interesting in that I didn't, I had told my my ex-husband about it when we were dating. So I was pretty open about it. And he was kind of like, okay, you know, I get it. That's fine. Like he was, I mean, he wasn't in any way critical about it. I wouldn't say that he wanted to pry in any way either. What I didn't realize was how it affected me in so many different ways and, and how I probably needed a lot more from him emotionally than he gave me in the marriage. And I didn't know how to verbalize that with him. And, um, I think that one of the issues that survivors have, uh, that I've come to learn, of course, is, <coughs> sorry, I'm getting over a cold. Um, is that we, um, 
I've, I've always worked. I've, ever since I was age 14, my parents didn't make a ton of money. They were Neither of them went to college. And I was, like I said, very into athletics and cheerleading and all that stuff. So my mom basically said, if you wanted you know, new cheer uniform, you're going to have to earn the money for it. And so from 14 till you know the rest of my life, basically, I have always had a job and, and you know, earned my own way, paid for college, the whole thing. And <clears throat> I always had my own money, always even married, had my own bank accounts and my own savings and the whole thing. Um, when I got married, I, you know, pretty much thought that my husband would, you know, he seemed to have a pretty good take on money and investing and, and things like that. And I trusted him, which you do when you're married, you trust your husband. Um, like I said, not a bad guy. He's a child of an alcoholic. So that should have been a red flag for me. Um, they, you know, they talk about love languages. His love language is to spend money. Mm. And so he was really good at taking me places, buying me nice things. Um, a lot of times with money that we had saved that I thought we were still saving that would go toward taxes or house payments and <laughs> things like that. Kind of important um, stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we ended up in a lot of financial trouble with that I was completely unaware of. And then, you know, a lot of people end up divorcing over money issues. We really were no different. And like I said, he's a good person. He's, he's not a bad guy. I have no issues with him. He was never emotionally abusive or physically abusive, really just a, like I said, a good guy. But, you know, like, like I said, like most survivors himself included, I never really understood the effects and I don't think he does to this day of being the child of an alcoholic had for him, um, as well as my own issues with trusting him with money. And it was really just a mess. It was just one big messy soup that got everywhere. And um, so I'm still cleaning up the financial mess that we both contributed to really not unknowingly. Um but I knew that I just couldn't live that life anymore and for myself and for my kids and being the responsible person that I had always been. I just needed to take hold of all that. And so it's, I've spent the last few years cleaning it all up and I feel like I'm in a really good place now. That's so great. That's beautiful. And it's so wonderful to hear. Like I said, we hear, you know, about some of the statistics and things like that. But I think to hear people who actually are moving from, um, you know, a, a place of not, not only surviving, but surviving and thriving is so huge. What's one of the mm -hmm. biggest, you think, rewards that you've experienced that say people, cause it can be really daunting work. I'm sure it is for someone to say, I'm going to really prioritize healing, or I'm going to get into therapy for the first time. What, what are some of the biggest payoffs, uh, that you think people can expect or that you have experienced? I think that self-care is huge, especially if you're a mom or even just, a, and I don't mean to say just, that's one of the, one of the words I'm trying to get rid of in my vocabulary is just, mm -hmm. um, if you're a survivor, it's okay to have boundaries. It's okay to say no. Um, I take too much on because I want to help people. I do a lot of things free. Um, I one of the things I wanted to be able to do was to give back to the community. And that's been really rewarding. So in addition to being a writer and being paid for the work that I do as Bad Redhead Media, I also do a lot of free writing 
for Huffington Post, for uh, bookpromotion.com, um, for Indie Reader, um, for a number of other sites, as well as my own two blogs uh, for Rachel and EOC, which is more about real life, as I said, but also for Bad Redhead Media, which is for marketing uh, for small businesses and for books. And then I also started Monday Blogs, which started in 2012, and that was really something that I really wanted to do as a way to give back to the blogging community, because that's really where I started and, and who embraced me. And that's really where my first two books came from, my humor books. And so I wanted to basically create something that bloggers could embrace, whether they were writers or not. And a day where it would be just about sharing our blog posts. And so that's, it's, I thought it would be pretty obvious Monday and blogs, right? <laughs> yeah. But apparently people don't understand that it's, they try to promote their books. Yeah. And so they'll share, Hey, go buy my book. Here's the link to my Amazon and they'll put Monday blogs. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Okay. No, yeah. it's, blogging on Monday. Like, why are you not getting this? No but kidding. every week I have to correct people and say no book promotion. But for the most part, most people, 90% of the people get it because it's pretty obvious. <laughs> and at this point now we have anywhere from five to 8,000 people that participate every week. And really all you do is just share a blog post. You can you know, if you blog on, you know, post on Wednesdays, then great. Keep posting on Wednesdays. Just share on Mondays using the hashtag Monday blogs. And it's great. You know, you share it, you get a ton of retweets. And if you retweet more people, then they retweet you. And, and really it's just built up into this sort of monolith kind of thing. And, um, I created the, the actual stream Monday blog. So it's at Monday blogs on Twitter. And we retweet as many as we possibly can that aren't book promotion or porn. Cause porn people love to like spread their legs and tweet stuff that we wouldn't normally look at. On and Monday then blogs? You, oh my goodness. At, they're not blogs. They're just yeah. pictures of things that really like, hello yeah. and, um, use the hashtag and it's like, sorry, no porn allowed. Yeah. Um, but if it's not porn and it's not book promotion, then we promote it. And we, I mean, we, you know, retweet it, but Twitter limits us. So, um, I, sorry, I didn't mean to go off on this topic, but I just wanted to let people know that's a great way for them to promote their own blogs and give back as well. Yeah. And then we're all doing this together. I love to say it's all a big soup, right? So <laughs> that's, that's another way that I give back. And it's been really, really rewarding. Um, because it, you know, all it costs me is time. It is quite a bit of time because I schedule things in for, um, for myself, for the gravity authors, because I'm directing the imprint for gravity, which we haven't really got to yet. Um, but I do all the authors for that. Um, I do stigma fighters. I'm on the, on the board for stigma fighters, which is a nonprofit that, um, helps fight the stigma of mental health issues. And so if they have any blog posts that they have shared throughout the week, I go ahead and schedule those in for them and um, a couple other, you know, some of my clients as well. So it's, it's something that I really dedicate a number of hours to, and then I retweet for a good 48 hours. That is awesome. And I can speak for the uh, fun of it because I only came upon it recently, maybe in the last couple of months. And when I've participated, what's so cool, it really does feel 
like a community. And that's what I love about blogging is that you get to connect with, you know, I've been introduced to cool other blogs that I want to check out. Um, I definitely have gotten more retweets and stuff like that. So thank you for the work you do. It really, you know, I'm sure that that is why it is so successful. Um, Before we wrap up, I know there's so much more we could talk about, um, but I would love to hear if you have any other projects going on. I know you have some specifically that we haven't talked about that involve abuse. Yeah. Um, besides sex abuse chat, again, that's on Tuesdays and anyone is welcome to join, whether they're survivors or spouses or children or parents or, you know, families, therapists, we get a number of therapists. We're always looking for guests as well. Um, so just get a hold of me at Rachel in the OC. Um, we have a, an anthology, excuse me, that's, been published now by book trope which is my publishing company and it's called the no more shame anthology and we're taking submissions right now <clears throat> sorry um and that's really a forum for anybody who is a survivor of really any kind of sexual abuse to share their story whether it's in prose or poetry and again you can contact me at rachel in the oc um at gmail.com or find me on twitter or facebook and i'll give you the information the submission guidelines Thank you so much for joining me, Rachel. Isn't she awesome? She's such a great resource, so passionate, so personable. Um, Definitely find her online. Her website is rachelintheoc.com. Check out her blog. Find her on Twitter. Uh, I also have a question for Dr. Megan, who weighed in the other day when we chatted. This question comes from an anonymous uh, reader and listener. I was sexually abused when I was a teenager, and it has made me a little afraid of men. I want to have better intimate relationships, but I don't know how to go about it. I guess with honesty and going slowly, any tips? Here's what Dr. Megan had to say. First, I just want to highlight that she's not alone. Um, You know, in studies, it's estimated 20 to 33% of women and 12 to 18% of men have been the victim of childhood or adolescent sexual abuse. Um, And the impact of that on mood, um, body image, sexual desire can, can be significant for some. And so... Um, I think she's absolutely right. It's about taking it slow and just being honest um, so that that there's not a sense of pressure expectation on either of them. And, you know, we call it sort of corrective emotional experiences, but it is possible that she can once again trust. And, you know, a partner who is familiar with her history is going to give her all the time that she needs to do the sexual exploration. And a great book that I'd recommend is The Sexual Healing Journey uh, by Wendy Maltz. Um, it's a good self-help place to start. Awesome. I love your book recommendations and actually, uh, include them in the follow-up notes. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, so then a more general question on the same topic in general, what are some of the biggest ways that sexual abuse during childhood, um, manifests itself in intimate relationships later in life? Yeah, I think that it's to recognize there's a range of how a history of abuse can impact you in later in life. And that has everything to do with uh, who was the abuser, what was the nature of it, how long did it go on. Um, so it ranges from everything to some who might be uh, more hypersexual um, and others who feel asexual. And then, unfortunately, another third end up acting out some the same kind of abuse that they've been um, experiencing themselves as a child or adolescent. So I think it's to recognize there's a range of ways it can impact someone, and it's not just sexually. It absolutely can show up in terms of depression, anxiety, body image, um, and it might even 
impact their ability to get into relationships and, and issues with trust. It's also uh, important to recognize that some uh, women and men fall into what we call sort of a repetition compulsion, where they're almost trying to fix that abuse and they end up being attracted uh, to men or women who have qualities that were uh, very similar to whoever that abuser had been. And so it's really important if someone recognizes an unhealthy pattern in their life that they realize that they're not alone and they don't have to do it alone. Um, there's some great counselors or sex therapists out there to help them. I love that. I think it's so important to know that there there is hope because I feel like we hear about the statistics or you know, many of the different issues, but we don't always hear the, the success stories. So have you actually seen or, or experienced or seen some of the actual um, success from the healing process? Absolutely. I mean, I've worked with women who, um, you know, have never been able to have vaginal penetration before related to their sex histories. First, we worked individually um, using dilators so that they know that they can comfortably insert something into their vagina um, and then really helping them communicate to their partners what they need and how to pace physical intimacy where they really feel the control and to help educate a partner. Sometimes people, we call it dissociate. They really um, aren't really present and they may not be aware of that. And so when a partner is really attuned, it's to slow it down and help them relax so that they can be engaged and experienced. But I absolutely have seen people get on the other side. And I know it can be scary and daunting to think about therapy or how long the process might take. But I say to people often, it's when you go slower that you ultimately get there faster. So great, right? So inspiring. Thank you again, Dr. Megan, for answering listener and reader questions and also mine, which I seem to always have endless amounts of. I so appreciate your expertise. To learn more about Dr. Megan, make sure you check out her website, greatlifegreatsex.com. You can also join she and I tomorrow on Twitter. We're going to be having our first Girl Boner Twitter party June 18th from 7 to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, along with the wonderful Artemis Film Festival crew. The theme is Strong is Sexy, and you can find us by just going over to Twitter at 7 and just enter in the hashtag WomenKickAss. I'll share that link and a whole lot more about our guests today and related topics in the show notes. To learn more about me and all things Girl Boner, make sure you visit my website where you'll also find those notes, augustmclaughlin.com. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. <laughs>